Good morning. I'm Ron Weir. It's a blessing to be able to share with you guys this morning. Thanks for coming out. This is one of the fuller Sundays I can remember in a long time. This is starting to feel a little bit like normal. Very little, but it's good to see you all. Thank you all for coming out. And uh, before we get started, just a couple of thoughts. One, on baptism, which we just heard about. Uh, it's not too late. If God's been tugging on your heart, um, you know, prompting you to consider baptism, uh, don't delay. Follow him. Obey him. Do that. Follow your heart. You'll be blessed for it, and you'll be uh, doing something that Jesus told us to do, be baptized. So consider that. If that's on your heart, don't disregard it. Don't, don't ignore it. Follow that. Um, we have room for you. It's not too late. Um, the other thought, just as we do begin to somewhat return to normal as a society, vaccines are getting more, more widely distributed, et cetera. Um, if you've had the vaccines uh, or you've had COVID, um, please consider coming out on a Sunday. We have room for you here as well. We would love nothing more than to have to add a second service. And uh, there's nothing quite like being together on a Sunday morning. So consider that. If you are in a comfort zone after a year of watching remotely, I get it. It's really easy. It's really sort of convenient. But that's your flesh, wanting to just sort of maintain the status quo. Make the sacrifice of getting out of that regular comfort zone that you've gotten used to and come out and be with us if you can. And if you're comfortable doing so, uh, we would love to see you. There's no substitute for the body of Christ coming together. Okay? So let's get started. I want to begin by bringing our time together before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Abba, Father, Daddy God, may my words be your words. May our hearts be reconnected or more deeply connected to your heart this morning. May we remember that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But may we also remember that there is truth in love. There is challenge of our bad habits and behaviors. There is holy conviction of sin. And there is individual and personal calling in Christ Jesus. May our lives be reignited this morning with the flame of our faith in you and with the burning desire to know you more, to serve you more, to make disciples more, and to do your work in ministry that you have uniquely designed each of us to do. We love you. We thank you for loving us first with an undying, unconditional love that you so graciously and freely gave to us while we were yet sinners and didn't deserve anything close to your extravagant love. May our life become a free-flowing river of the same kind of love, overrunning the banks of our heart and our life and pouring into the lives of those you put into our path, into the real-life pain and hardship, sadness and aloneness, sometimes hopelessness that so many people are enduring these days. Help us have the eyes to see. Help us have the time to care. Show us how we can help. We know that we have a hope and a future and an answer for them. We have the one and only true way 
into a present and a future that is about you and for you and beyond what they could ask or imagine. Help us to believe more deeply in the life-changing power and the life and death importance of you and your loving gift of salvation and abundant and eternal life. May we obey your command to us to go and make disciples as our life's most important focus and highest aspiration. We believe in our hearts that this is what you want most for us and all of your children, and we believe this is what will bring you the most honor and will most glorify your holy name. Amen. Amen? So this morning, we're going to conclude our series through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be studying the final chapter. I think it's kind of cool. We've been doing a 13-week series. There's 13 chapters of Nehemiah. If you'd like to go there in your Bibles, feel free, Nehemiah 13. We're going to reference uh, Nehemiah 13, obviously, during this morning's sermon. But before we do, I want to celebrate and, and, and think some with you about the fact that today is Palm Sunday. And I was so glad when I showed up and we have the palms, because I was thinking maybe we had decided it would be too germ risky or something. I was really happy that we went with the palms on Palm Sunday. Well, you can find the Palm Sunday story, if you guys are interested, after service in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And some of you likely know that this was one of many prophecies fulfilled through the birth, life, and death of Jesus. And you can find these prophecies in Zechariah 9, verse 9, as well as Isaiah 62, verse 11. Again, Zechariah 9, verse 9, Isaiah 62, verse 11. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day, almost 2,000 years ago, the very same city of Jerusalem, I might add, that Nehemiah and the Israelites boldly and faithfully rebuilt the wall around, as Chris shared with us last week, but as Jesus rode into the city that day, can you imagine what it must have been like to be in the front row somewhere along his procession? Wow. Imagine seeing him. Imagine having him literally look into your eyes right there. Maybe say hi to you personally. What? Or to have him say something more like, thank you so much for coming out today. Or I feel so honored, Bill, that you came out to see me today. Can you begin to think how amazing it would have been to be one of the ones who got to lay down their palm branches to honor him as you and others attempted to create the royal red carpet or that royal palm branch carpet? Just pause and consider what they must have felt and the fullness of the blessing they were able to experience in that moment. As we celebrate the special day of Palm Sunday and we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, and as we conclude our journey through the book of Nehemiah, I'd like us to consider what it must have been like. In addition to this, please think more, yes, here and now this morning, of course, but every day from today until he comes back, what was it like for those who were ready to receive him and his fullest blessing to honor him, to acknowledge him, to experience him. And consider also, what was it like for the many, many others who were not ready? Who in all likelihood weren't even there, or maybe didn't even know he was near. 
This would have been true for Palm Sunday, would have been true the day of Jesus' birth, after his death and resurrection, he, the 40 days he reappeared to the apostles and others. There were lots of people who didn't even know. They weren't aware, they weren't there. They missed out, they weren't ready to receive him. And what will it be like on the day he returns for us? I personally, I don't know about you, but I would really love for each and every one of us here today in person and watching online to be ready for him. Do you agree? Do you also want to be ready? I want to be ready. I want us to be ready. You see, and this is something we've mentioned several times during our 13-week series on the book of Nehemiah, but Jesus is the better Nehemiah. And yet, despite being set in an Old Testament pre-New Covenant era, we can learn so much from Nehemiah. And I hope you all have learned so much from Nehemiah about yourself, but we, we can learn about ourselves, our own walk with Jesus, our covenant relationship, which has kind of given new meaning, and, and I love how Greg built that out around the word covenant in our name. But it's it, you know, a deeper understanding of what covenant means with him and with his church, about discernment and wisdom, about the importance of community, about our faithfulness and our obedience, about leadership, about the disciplines of the Spirit, and about our own readiness, again, and our preparedness for his return. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but we are living through an incredible historical time right now of prophecy being fulfilled, and also a time, I believe, where we as a world, as a big C Christian church, and as community covenant church, we're being purified, we're being sifted and tested, called out, asked to humble ourselves and repent, asked to more fully devote ourselves, more fully surrender to his word and his truth, and what he's asking personally each of us to do. Think of this as ministry, pouring out of our life. Are you willing to say to him, not my will, but yours be done, as Jesus himself said to his Father God? Are you willing by his grace and Holy Spirit power and discernment alone to do everything you possibly can to be ready for his return and the rapture? Because you see, being ready isn't something you do in the future. It's something you do in the present. It's a way of living here and now every day until he returns. I assume most of you know what the Bible says about Christ's return and how he will come and get us first, right? It's called the rapture. And the rapture is a real thing that is foretold in the Bible. You won't find the actual word rapture anywhere in the Bible. But then again, you can't find the word Bible or the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible either, and we know those are true. So let's look at what rapture is. The Greek word is harpazo. It's used many times in the Bible. It's defined as to seize upon, to snatch away, to take to oneself. It also means to be caught up or to be taken away. So the rapture is going to be this catching up of his people into his presence. In the Latin, the word is rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture from. So you can call it whatever you want. You can call it rapturo or hapazo or rapture. The fact is, he is coming back 
For those of us who are his followers and are ready, and we are going to be raptured. You can read more about the rapture in Acts 8, verse 39, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 12, 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and also Revelation 12, verse 5. And in John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus himself told his disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you have a genuine desire of your heart to one day, maybe one day soon, who knows, have him receive you in this way and hear him say those inconceivable words of blessing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or would you rather take what may seem like the easier road and remain lukewarm in your zeal and passion to know him and serve him? Yes, sign me up. I want to be lukewarm in my zeal and passion to know him and serve him, and I know you all do too. Of course not, right? Are you willing to settle for not hearing those words, not bringing him all the possible honor and glory that you can with your one and only life? Are you willing to spend the remainder of your earthly life not fully realizing all he intended and called you to, all the ways he had hoped to use you for his purpose? his various purposes, all the people he wanted to touch and speak to and draw unto him through you. How many of you want to fall short of your fullest potential? How many of you want to actually proactively break your promises? How many of you want to live with even more regrets than you may already be living with? Again, of course not, right? Let's think about this stuff, you guys. This is so important. Of course not. But too often we are lulled to sleep by this idol-filled world, by the schemes and deceptions of the ruler of this world, as we allow ourselves to be, because the enemy has no power over Christians. But as we allow ourselves to be, we literally walk away from him as we do, and from his abundant life, and from his most fulfilling plan for us, and we choose instead far lesser things over him. For many of us, unfortunately, we won't even know that we've done this until that day when he returns and our life is played back to us before him. And very interestingly, as we'll see in just a few minutes, this is basically what the Israelites did in the years following the season of full devotion and full dedication that Chris shared and taught us about last week. Even though I am very clear personally that I will always fall short of his perfection and holiness, I will always depend upon his grace. I still don't want to stand before my Lord and Savior on that day and not feel at least somewhat joyful that I've done my very best to serve him and obey him and to glorify his name with my earthly life. And even though the Israelites lived under the law, as they referred to it, in the days of Nehemiah, their call and their covenant to obey was not, at least in its purest form, legalism. It was their attempt to be holy. 
It was their attempt to honor and obey him, to love him, to worship him, and to choose him over other gods, over other idols and earthly, fleshly pleasures or worldly power or solutions. Sound familiar? The battle we have every day in our current culture, isn't it? It's the same battle that they dealt with. So let's look at some key passages from Nehemiah 13. Two main concepts that we learn in this chapter. First, true worship leads to the nation's obedience. True worship leads to the nation's obedience. And two, Nehemiah models for us effective godly leadership by his willingness and his courage in speaking truth and love into the wayward culture of Jerusalem that was badly needing reforms as a result. So, starting out in verses 1 through 3, and if you have not read chapter 13 of Nehemiah yet, please take the time to do so, and I would suggest sometime later today, find 15, 20 minutes to sit down and read it today while it's fresh coming out of the message. Give yourself that time and make that a priority, but keep in mind that Nehemiah has traveled back to his king, Artaxerxes, and while he's gone, the people lose their focus and they lose the singular worship, uh, the, the, the God of their worship. They, 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 they lose the focus of their worship. Most theologians agree that he would have been away from Jerusalem for about a decade, 10 to 12 years. So not a long time, really. But at the same time, it's not hard to imagine when we think about how quickly our own culture has declined in terms of the protection of human life, or prayer in the public square, or religious liberty, as I was just talking with my friend Nancy about. But more importantly, the increasing belief, particularly among young people these days, that church attendance and the body of Christ is not an important thing to be a part of, really. All of this has happened during our lifetimes in a relatively short period of time. Chapter 13 opens with the nation hearing the law and in the hearing of the law, discovering that they have disobediently allowed Ammonites and Moabites into the assembly of God, as they called it. This meant to be regarded as one of the people of Israel and the people of God. It meant one could fully participate in the spiritual life of Israel. Now keep in mind, an Israelite was part of God's covenant by birth, but an Ammonite or a Moabite was not. They had to become a part of the covenant by choice, by joining with God's people and leaving the gods of their people. They had to choose, like we do, to reject those gods and instead embrace Yahweh. This command was a powerful message. It said to these Ammonites and Moabites, you were not a part of the people of God by birth. You must choose this and leave the thinking and the deeds of your anti-God culture. Truly join into the spiritual life of God's people. Unless you leave the one and join the other, you will never really be a part of this spiritual life. Come, join us. Powerful, right? It's important to keep in mind also that the Ammonites and the Moabites were singled out because of their devious schemes against Israel when Israel was called into the promised land at least a thousand years before this. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God had told Abraham that he would bless him and those who bless him, and he would curse those who curse him. 
That was the Ammonites and Moabites, among others. But God turned the curse into a blessing, even though the prophet Balaam wanted to curse them, which also reminds us that God is able, more than able, to turn any curse into a blessing. After hearing God's commands and the law read from the book of Moses, the people of Israel obey. And they separate from what was referred to as the mixed multitude. Now, this term referred to those who wanted to associate with the people of Israel, but did not want to make a full commitment and embrace the covenant. Selfish, political, financial reasons, who knows what, are likely to have been part of their motivation. But these were people who were not in covenant with God and had openly and willingly chosen other lesser things over him. The Israelites could have thought of 20 reasons why you know, they, they didn't have to do what the Word of God plainly told them to do. Instead, they simply obeyed. This is something I want to repeat. They could have given many reasons why they weren't going to obey, just like we can. Too often, right? But instead, what did they do? They just obeyed. This is a challenge for all of us to heed and consider in our own lives and in our own present culture. Do we know what God commands us to do in his word? We need to know the truth and follow the truth. Consider in your own private time, what is God saying to you through his word, through prayer, through circumstances, and through other people? Caution on that one, though. Just be sure that these other people are mature followers of Jesus and not perhaps part of our own mixed multitude. You could say that in Christianity today, in some circles, due to biblical uh, you know, you know, immaturity, spiritual immaturity, biblical illiteracy, we too often have this scenario of the blind leading the blind. So be sure who you're taking advice from. Just give you a caution on that. But he may be calling you to do something or to stop doing something. And if you're listening and seeking, you will hear him. And then by his grace and the power of his spirit, you will get to choose, just like the people of Israel did, to obey or to disobey. Trust and follow him or not. So the remainder of chapter 13, as you will see, lays out four types of societal reforms that Nehemiah implements to help the people find their way back to honoring their covenant. First off, in verses 4 through 9, you'll read about what we call temple reforms. And I think I might have left it off my list here. Um, so the first one really is temple reforms, and then these other three follow along. But in 4 through 9, uh, he implemented temple reforms. And upon his return, what had happened, Nehemiah had discovered that Eliashib, the priest, Think about it. This is the high priest that is in this, the highest role uh, that you, you know, in the church had sold out the storeroom to Tobiah and made various agreements with him. Do you remember that name, Tobiah? Yeah. Not a great guy. Um, certainly not someone who was supporting the rebuilding of the wall. If anything, he was trying to stop Nehemiah in those early chapters from, from rebuilding the wall. But the storeroom was in the temple courts. 
And Tobiah had not joined with the people of God. He was part of this mixed multitude. He had not covenanted with God and, and agreed to the terms of the covenant with God. This grieved Nehemiah for several reasons. First of all, because the courts of the temple were occupied by a pagan and someone who had even opposed God's work, as I said, in the rebuilding of the wall. But secondly, it grieved him because it reflected so poorly on Eliashib, the high priest, and as such on the other priests and leaders like Nehemiah. And then lastly, it grieved him because it made Nehemiah question the lasting value of the spiritual revival that he had witnessed when he was last in Jerusalem. Nehemiah took very strong action in response to this. He apparently didn't care about popularity contests or the accolades of men or political or financial gain. He wasn't politically correct. His values were aligned with God's, not man's. May we see his witness and his role model in our own lives and world today in speaking truth to power and speaking truth in love where we need to. Next, we see his financial reforms, and that should say verses 10 through 14, you guys. It's a mistake on my slide there, my apology. Nehemiah was most concerned in these verses with the lack of integrity related to the Levites. Their portion of the financial resources had not been properly given to them as they were supposed to have been. This lack of giving was a way in which the Israelites were forsaking the house of God, not trusting him fully, and instead demonstrating their greater value in other gods or really themselves, right? I trust we're all aware of what God calls us to with regard to our finances for his church and with regards to debt and generosity more generally. But let's all be humble to the temptations that we are all exposed to in this world um, and these weren't any different, I suppose, for the Israelites. What a blessing it's been, and I know we've commented on this over the last several months, but what a blessing it's been this past year to see the faithfulness of our church. One specific way that we have seen this is the giving and generosity that many of you have chosen. I pray that we would all keep our eyes open wide to what God's Word says, to the temptations of the enemy and of our flesh, and to the kind of grateful life that gives and supports his church the way that he instructs us to. The third type of reforms that we read about in verses 15 through 22 were referred to as priority reforms. And this mostly dealt with doing business on the Sabbath. Don't, don't we see this all through the scriptures? Like, I mean, we, they never got this point, and guess what? We still don't get it today. And, and what was happening was, this was a big part of what Nehemiah was addressing, is, you know, they were doing business on the Sabbath. They weren't going to temple, and worse yet, they were doing business on the Sabbath instead. And while we're not under the law of the Sabbath in the same sense Israel was under the Old Covenant, we are certainly under the same obligation and debt of gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for us, to honor him more than making money, to honor him more than spending money on ourselves, Yes? Whatever that looks like, it might not be a strict Sunday Sabbath, but we are in a debt of gratitude to him, and, and we should be able to make that choice over ourselves and over more money or more, whatever we have our trust in instead of him. So to set aside devoted, uninterrupted Sabbath time with him, where we choose him as the most valuable thing in our lives, 
where we're humble to our need for the rest and restoration through that essential time of connecting and communicating with him and with his body and his church, right? So the final type of reform that Nehemiah implemented, we'll read about in verses 23 through 31, they were relationship reforms. Basically, Israelite men were marrying women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and not only were these mixed multitudes, as I said earlier, allowed into the assembly of God, but they were allowed to intermarry with the Israelite people. Nehemiah, excuse me, may have discerned that the enemy was at work in the midst of this. Um, this was effectively a, what amounted to a sexual sin at the time. He was apparently concerned about the long-term, even intergenerational impact of such open sexual sin. And with some of the people who he confronted about this, Nehemiah reacted violently toward them, punching them, even pulling their hair. Now, was this the right response? Probably not. I think it's fair to say. But again, you know, Chris and I were talking earlier, you know, it's just, just like one more way that God shows us the humanity of so many people in his narrative and so that we can relate with more, right? Nehemiah is a man. He's not Jesus. Um, and also, you know, Chris made a good point. He says it's also a kind of a way that we, we further see the inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, if, if someone was fabricating this thing that we believe called Christianity, would they have made so many people making bad mistakes and doing things that weren't very godly? Probably not. They would have written it a little more perfectly, don't you think? But it's real. It's human. It's who we are, and it's who they were, and it's who Nehemiah was. But some theologians assert that there was a possibility, because this was sexual sin, that there was a demon at work. Maybe he thought what he was doing was trying to drive out a demon or attacking a demon. I'm not really sure, but still, I think it's clear that this is not what seems like the most ideal godly behavior that we see at the very conclusion of this amazing story of Nehemiah. I almost kind of wonder to myself, um, no theologians uh, on this, just Ron Weir, but I kind of wonder if through ending the book like this, you know, with this less than godly behavior, this even violent treatment of others, again, maybe it's in, in part to make the point to us that just like King David, just like Solomon, just like Peter, just like Paul, so many others in a Christian narrative that did so much good but also had moments of bad, um, that Nehemiah and us too, uh, only as we remain in him, only as we abide in him and stay connected as branches to the vine, are we capable of anything truly good and holy? Just humble yourself to that reality. Only as we stay connected to him, as we abide in him, only if he's our source do we have any chance of doing anything truly good or holy. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Just read and reflect on one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John 15, 1 through 5. Our one and only job that he tells us in this Scripture is what? It's not to bear fruit. People think it's to bear fruit. No. It's to remain connected to him. To abide in him. Jesus is the vine. God is the vine keeper. We are the branch. He will bear fruit through us, but only if we remain in him, connected to him. We too often in our performance and comparison culture think we have to produce, but we don't. We do, however, have to remain connected to the one and only true source of our life if we ever hope 
to allow him to bear fruit with it. Make sense? So we are all, even the seemingly most holy and upright among us, nothing without him. And if we acknowledge this as truth, we must humbly cling to his grace, his word, his spirit, and his church. We must be one with him like he is one with his father. We must commune with him, communicate with him, seeking him, asking him our most heartfelt questions and to help us realize our heart's desire to give us wisdom, discernment, love, and grace for ourselves and for others. It's our only hope, and it's the way to true discipleship. Really, Nehemiah 13 is a chapter about discipleship. It's a, it's a chapter to how to become a disciple and how to obediently and faithfully be a disciple, and it's a chapter on how to go and make disciples. Because that's really what Nehemiah was doing when he came back all over again, right? And this, this idea of discipleship, Pastor Greg shared a couple weeks ago, I thought that was great when he said his gift is free, but, it's, but it also costs much. Remember when he said that? His gift is free, but it also costs much. So here's the question that we all have to ask. Are you willing, are we willing to make the costly and fully devoted decisions of true disciples of Jesus Christ, whatever that means in the future. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This isn't about living a life that's, you know, unfulfilling or, or it's, it's not an adventure or exciting or maybe it's like, oh, you think it's just going to be boring? Absolutely not, because this is a truly miraculous and amazing way of life that we have access to through Jesus. When we live his way as a true disciple, we live with a constant sense of oneness with him, a constant sense of expectancy, a constant instinct to communicate with him, to seek his direction and answer, answers for things that we have in front of us that we need to engage with. These can be relationships, problems of different kinds, illness, loss, and they can be scary opportunities that are being opened up to us, right? As we walk with him as true disciples, all things are possible. The fear and anxiety lose their grip on us. We are living in his kingdom and his life, not ours. And when we live in this place and in this way, our lives are full with the blessings of purpose, of power, and of peace. Purpose, power, and peace in the midst of real life and hard things. It's not like suddenly the hard things in the real life go away, no. Nancy reminded me again this morning. He promised us we will face various trials. We've got a lot of people in our community that have faced various trials this year. But their lives are full with the blessings of purpose, power, and peace, and that is a testimony to him. Consider the underground church in China for a moment as a good picture and what we are perhaps likely, don't fool yourself, to face at some point, maybe even more. This place where the most oppression and the least freedom exist, maybe in the entire world, and yet his church is growing exponentially there. How? Why? True disciples. Making the costly and fully devoted decisions daily to serve him and honor him and trust and obey him alone. To risk their lives, to risk their families' lives, if you want to be inspired, 
cons- uh, in, in, in this context of China, consider reading Randy Alcorn's book, Safely Home, which tells the amazing story of a true disciple Christian missionary in China, so inspiring and challenging to our safe and comfortable way of life. So Nehemiah 13 gives us powerful insight into what we're being called to as his disciples and the possible impact of our choices for his kingdom for the remainder of our lives. All of us, until our dying day or until he returns, will always have room to move closer to him, to reflect him more, and to bear more fruit for him than we did yesterday. If it's a genuine desire of your heart, he so wants to bless us with this. Will you choose today to receive his fullest blessing for you and for your life? In the Baptist tradition just a generation ago, the invitation to accept Jesus or to become a member of, our, uh, of, a, of the church was most often accompanied by this thing called uh, surrender to ministry. And people were invited not just to accept Jesus or to become a member of the church, but to surrender to ministry. I love this idea. I love this language. It means surrendering to his service, to doing his work, to faithfully living for him. It's seeing ourselves literally as ministers of his peace and of his reconciliation. It's seeing ourselves literally as his hands, his feet, loving and caring for, providing and protecting others the way he would as his representatives on this earth. Will you join me this morning in surrendering to ministry? Let's go before the Lord uh, with this together as we conclude, right where you are, wherever you are on your journey of faith in Christ. Even those of you at home, please join me if you're physically able to. On our knees, humbly before our most high Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Abba Father, our Daddy God, please consider joining me and repeat after me if you agree. Let's pray together as we close. For those of you who can't physically do this, please consider at least standing and joining with us. And again, if you agree, repeat after me. We kneel before you, Lord, laying down our palm branches in our life. We commit to some important things today, Lord. Please hear our prayer. We repent of the sin you've shown us. We will obey you and your word. We will devote our lives to you more fully. We will serve you and your church more fully. We will obey your word. We will study your word. We will walk in your Holy Spirit and we will abide in you. If I remain in you, I will bear much fruit. Apart from you, I can do nothing. It is my deepest desire of my heart, Lord, to honor you and worship you and serve you 
with my whole heart and the balance of my life, with my unique gifts, my personal resources, and my relationships. Help me, dear Lord, by your grace and your Holy Spirit, and as a part of your beautiful bride and body, your church. Help me to more personally and powerfully discover that I am, we are your church for your glory forever and ever. Amen.